This excursion in history is the story of the island fortress of Great Britain during World War II. Hitler has smashed all of his enemies on the continent of Europe, and now he seeks to conquer the British islands next. The British have felt the blow at Dunkirk. They have felt the blow of the German Luftwaffe. But there is one thing that has kept this island fortress alive, her navy. Her navy is the only thing that keeps the supplies coming to England from the great arsenal of democracy, the United States. England's very existence depends upon the British Navy. If only Hitler could cut this vital supply line, England would have to fall. In May of 1941, with his army stretched out all over Europe and North Africa, Hitler decided to try to end this British dominance of the high seas. This, then, is that story. This is the story of the battle for control of the Atlantic Ocean. Besides her submarines, the Germans' main threat to the British Navy was her surface fleet. The backbone of her surface fleet was the pride of the German Navy, the battleship Bismarck. She was one of the most modern battleships on the high seas and was equipped with the best and latest equipment. She displaced 42,000 tons and was capable of doing 28 knots. She had an anti-torpedo belt and for her main armament, she was equipped with eight 15-inch guns. For the most part, the British Navy kept the German Navy bottled up in the Baltic Sea. But the British knew it would be only a matter of time before the Germans would send out into the high seas this pride of the German Navy. This would certainly be a boost to British morale if they could sink the Bismarck. The British Admiral in charge of the British home fleet at this time was Sir John Tovey. He was stationed at the big British naval base at Scapa Flow. One of the first things that he did when he took command was to place spies along the Norwegian coast. It was their job to keep their eyes peeled for any large ships trying to get out of the Baltic Sea and into the North Sea and into the North Atlantic. On May 21st, 1941, at about 8 a.m., a coded message arrived at the British Admiralty in London. It was one of their secret agents in Sweden. The report stated that two large German ships were heading into the North Sea. Was it the Bismarck? The fog was hanging low, and the ships were seen only on the horizon. It was very difficult to make any positive identification. Immediately, the British Admiralty dispatched reconnaissance planes to comb the Norwegian ports and fjords to see if these German ships could be identified. The pilot of one such reconnaissance plane sighted what looked like to him two German cruisers at Grimstad Fjord. The pilot photographed the two ships and flew back to England. It was not until later that the pictures were developed and the ships were then identified. Well, was it the pride of the German fleet? Yes, indeed, it certainly was. The ships in the photograph were identified as the German battleship Bismarck and the German heavy cruiser Prince Eugen. 
Planes were immediately dispatched to locate and destroy this prize. But by the time the planes reached the fjord, the ships were gone. The German battleship had given the British the slip. If only the reconnaissance pilot had recognized the ship. Oh well, never mind that now. Where and how could the Bismarck and Prince Eugen get into the North Atlantic? Sir John Tovey believed that the Bismarck and the Eugen would try to get into the North Atlantic by using the Denmark Straits near Greenland. So British patrol ships along that area were notified to be on the lookout for the German monster. Sir John Tovey had guessed correctly. The Bismarck and the Prince Eugen were steaming for the Denmark Straits. The German ships were on a mission. The code name of that mission was Rhine Exercise. According to the orders from the German Admiralty, Admiral Gunter Lugens was to proceed into the North Atlantic. He was to sink all British merchant vessels and to cut off the supplies going to England. His orders also read that he was to avoid, if possible, any engagements with British warships. In other words, he was not to engage in a duel with British warships, but just sink merchant vessels. As dawn broke on May 23rd, there was no sign of the Bismarck. Two British cruisers were watching and looking for anything that might be trouble. But what could they do if they did spot the Bismarck? These two British ships were no match for a battleship. According to their orders, they were just to find and shadow the Bismarck. They were to keep the rest of the British Navy informed as to the whereabouts of the Germans. While they were doing this, the British would move their big guns, the battleships, into positions and do battle with the Germans. The heaviest guns that the British had were sent into the North Atlantic. These two ships, the biggest ones that the British had, were His Majesty's Ship Hood and His Majesty's Ship Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales was so new that when she was given orders to sail toward the Denmark Straits, she sailed with a civilian workman crew still working on her. But regardless of how new she was, her services were needed, and needed now. As dawn broke on the 23rd of May, 1941, there was still no sign of the Bismarck. In the Denmark Straits near Greenland, two British cruisers were on the alert. Both of the ships were equipped with radar, and both had orders to be on the watch for the Bismarck. All that morning, there was nothing but vigil. The weather in the Denmark Straits was its usual self, patches of drifting fog. Then came a cry that was heard throughout the British cruiser Suffolk's. Ship bearing green 140 degrees. And a moment later, two ships bearing green 140 degrees. Captain Ellis of the Suffolk's raced to the starboard side of the bridge. Through his binoculars, he saw the Bismarck and the Prince Eugen and at a close distance of only 40,000 yards, about seven and a half miles. Captain Ellis knew that at this distance he could be blown out of the water by the powerful guns of the Bismarck. Hard to port, went the command. He would head for a fog bank. It seemed like an eternity to the crew of the ship before the Suffolks moved into the fog. Apparently, the lookouts on the Bismarck had seen nothing. Captain Ellis was in a ticklish position. Sure, he had found the Bismarck, but he was forced to steer into his own minefields to escape her. 
Then, too, if the Bismarck's radar spotted him, ugh, what a horrible thought. The best thing he could do, he thought, was to let the rest of the British Navy know the location of this pride of the German Navy. He radioed the news frantically, position, course, and speed. As Captain Ellis watched the Bismarck and the Prince Eugen pass on his radar screen, the other British cruiser, which had been on lookout in the Denmark Straits, came out of the fog some 15 miles to the south. And there, less than six miles away from him, steering directly for his position, was the Bismarck. Captain Phillips of the Norfolk turned his ships sharply, laid down a smokescreen to hide himself while he headed for the fog for protection. But Captain Phillips's action came too late. The salvos of the 15-inch guns of the Bismarck straddled his small ship. It was a narrow miss. At this point, the two British ships fell out of range of the Bismarck and followed at a respectful distance. Yet, they kept the rest of the British fleet informed of the Germans' positions. This information, being sent out by the two cruisers, was being picked up by His Majesty's ship Hood and His Majesty's ship the Prince of Wales, and the big guns of the British Navy now began to merge toward those positions. At 5.35 a.m. on May 24, 1941, lookouts on the hood sighted the silhouettes of the Bismarck and the Prince Eugen. The moment the British Navy had been waiting for so impatiently had finally come. It was the moment that Admiral Lugens on the Bismarck had hoped to avoid. His orders were to sink British merchant ships and to evade battle with British warships, if he could. Since that was no longer possible, he would now have to engage these two British capital ships, which were converging on him at top speed. One of the ships certainly must be the British ship Hood, which he knew to be the most powerful warship in the British Navy. At 5.52 a.m., Lugens radioed Berlin, am engaging two heavy units of the British Navy. At that very moment, the 15-inch guns of the Hood went off at a range of 25,000 yards, and the 14-inch guns of the Prince of Wales opened fire a second later. The Bismarck replied with everything she had, and thusly, a great naval battle was engaged in the icy North Atlantic. The battle would last exactly 17 minutes. It started off with the fact that the Hood mistook the German cruiser Eugen for the Bismarck and was firing on the wrong ship. The Prince of Wales, however, was firing at the Bismarck. But since her turrets and guns were so new and untried, the shots landed wide of their target. German gunnery seemed to be much better, and they concentrated their firepower on the Hood, which they considered to be far more deadly than the Prince of Wales. Within the first minutes, the Hood had been hit by the Prince Eugen, and that started fires near the Hood's main mast. The Suffolks and the Norfolk, however, were not ordered into battle. Why they were not directed to join in this battle and split the German firepower remains a mystery to this day. Disaster now struck swiftly for the British. As the British ship Hood came about, a salvo from the Bismarck hit the Hood amidship. The shell pierced through a half a dozen decks and exploded amongst the 300 tons of high explosive shells in the magazine of the Hood. Between the funnels of the Hood there was a sudden volcanic eruption. Flames shot skyward. 
Then in a second or two it burned out and a dense cloud of smoke settled over the sea. When the smoke parted, the hood was gone. It had been blown in two. With the hood gone, the Prince of Wales now received the murderous hail of fire from the two German ships. One 15-inch shell smashed her bridge. The ship was pierced by several hits below and above the waterline. Yet all this time, the Prince of Wales continued to fire defiantly with what guns she could. Finally, the Prince of Wales retired from the action under a smokescreen, and still the Suffolk and the Norfolk took no part in the action. Now Admiral Lugens made his first mistake. He failed to follow the crippled Prince of Wales and sink her. Instead, he resumed course southwest toward the Mid-Atlantic. But there was a good reason why he did not continue the fight himself. It seems as if the Bismarck had been hit by the Prince of Wales. In a coded message to Berlin, the report came in that one of the electric engines had broken down aboard the Bismarck. Berlin analyzed the damage, but felt that it was all right for the Bismarck to continue. The thing that was now bothering Lugens was how to shake the three British ships that were trailing him. Perhaps if he reversed his course and resumed fighting with the ships, he might be able to scare them off. And so, Admiral Lugens ordered his ships to come about and directed his fire against the British. The radar shack of the Suffolk's hummed the news that the Germans were coming about. And sure enough, through the mists, at about 20,000 yards, the Bismarck could be seen. The shells of the Bismarck now fell near the British ships, but they fell a little short. The Suffolk's now sped out of range, but the Prince of Wales began to let go with her guns, and a second battle seemed to be getting underway. Then all of a sudden, the Bismarck quit firing and reversed her course into the Atlantic. But where was the Prince Eugen all this time? She had slipped into the fog and was headed back toward Germany. Admiral Lugens hoped to confuse the British into thinking that the Bismarck was going back to Germany and not the cruiser Eugen. And in all this confusion, with everything going which way or the other, contact was lost with the Bismarck. The next day of May the 25th, 1941, there was still no sight of the Bismarck. The British launched aircraft to see if the Bismarck could be located, but this effort failed. The search continued on the 26th for the great adversary, and there was nothing but radio silence. Then around 10.30 a.m. on the 26th of May, a British flying boat looked down through the clouds. Look! Look there! There it was, a German battleship. Quickly the news was flashed. One battleship sighted, position 49 degrees, 30 minutes north, 21 degrees, 50 minutes west, steering 150 degrees, speed 24 knots. As the electrifying message crackled over the airways, the British Navy began heading toward those positions. The duty of the hour now was to slow down the Bismarck and give the British battleships time to close on the Bismarck's position. To accomplish this, the British dispatched aircraft from their aircraft carriers to strike at the Bismarck with torpedoes. At about 8.54 p.m., the British planes made their approach on the Bismarck, and by 9.25 p.m., the last torpedoes were away. Night was falling fast, and British fleet units were awaiting reports of any damage made by the planes. 
Finally, the reports came in. Estimated hits, none. Gloom fell over the British Navy, for there would be no catching the Bismarck now. Then Captain Larkham of the British cruiser Sheffield crackled out a message. Bismarck, reversing course, 180 degrees. What was it? What could it mean? The answer was that the last torpedo dropped struck the Bismarck's rudder. The explosion had jammed the rudder of the huge ship, and all she could do now was to circle about. As dawn broke on the 27th of May, fleet units of the British Navy began to converge on the Bismarck's position. These were the big guns of the British Navy, the battleship George V and the Rodney. Thus, shortly after 9 o'clock, the Bismarck was engaged in a death struggle with two British battleships and two heavy cruisers. Such naval superiority would soon begin to tell. The British warships were scoring direct hits with their big shells. One of the first salvos was seen knocking away part of the Bismarck's bridge. Yet the German guns still blazed away defiantly, even though they were losing their accuracy. The range of the British ships now lowered to a bare 8,000 yards. Both the Rodney and the King George V were delivering full broadsides as fast as they could load their guns. The Bismarck was obviously hurt by such a murderous fire at such a close range. A large fire was seen belching smoke and flame amidship. Some of the Bismarck's 15-inch guns were no longer firing. Two of them had dropped almost to the waterline, while others pointed crazily at the sky. The Bismarck's hydraulic controls were no longer functioning. As the British poured in their salvos, one of the gun turrets of the Bismarck was blown clear away, its twisted metal toppling against the bridge of the ship. At about 10 a.m., little more than an hour after the action had started, the last of the Bismarck's guns were silenced. She had been reduced to a battered, flaming, smoking hulk. Through the jagged shell holes in her side, you could see the bright fires consuming her. Yet, above this blazing inferno, the Bismarck's flag still flew. She was beaten, finished, but she refused to surrender. Thus ended one of the great naval battles of the North Atlantic. Once again, England was able to prove her naval superiority, a superiority that she has had since the time of Queen Elizabeth I. The main significance of this Battle of the Atlantic, which was won by England, was, I think, that it kept the island fortress of Great Britain from falling to Hitler's Germany. And thusly, it would become a springboard from which the Allies would later lead their assaults against the criminals of mankind. And civilization would be given another chance to prove itself worthy of existing. <laughs>